Good evening and welcome to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Hopkins, and tonight we celebrate episode 117. And I want to say just a word in the closing of this Christmas epiphany kind of season that we've been in uh, about the visit of the Magi. Uh, We call them often the wise men. Uh, There's a lot of tradition and a lot of, quite frankly, Uh, layers of bunk (laughs) piled onto the wise men. And I want to clear through a little bit of that and and share with you who they really are and why they come to see the Christ child. Their story is found in the second chapter of Matthew. Uh, The Christmas story from Charlie Brown that we're so familiar with is Luke chapter 2. This is Matthew chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born to be king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Interesting that that's his question. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called a secret meeting with the Magi and found out from them the exact time when the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose appeared again in front of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. Upon seeing the star, the wise men were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. It's a very familiar story, isn't it? If you've grown up in the church, you've heard it your entire life. But it comes with a lot of baggage. At the time Jesus was born, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's all Matthew says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Um, By the wise men's telling, it's a year, a year and a half, a little less than two years since Jesus has been born. Um, Luke said that after the 90-day consecration, they went back to Nazareth. Matthew has them here at least a year later, still in Bethlehem. Well, Again, they're telling two different stories from two different perspectives for two different purposes. Matthew alone uh, records the visit of the Magi. Well, who are these Magi? Well, they're from the east. They're from out in the area of the Levant, out towards Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, maybe even Pakistan. They're from way out there. And they aren't Jews. They have a very different life. Magi, it's related to our word for magic. They're magicians. Uh, 
They're sorcerers, wizards, they're alchemists, they're chemists, they're, they're astronomers. They're the closest thing there were to scientists in Jesus' day. And, and they're men who study the way that things work. And, and part of that is studying the sky. Now, they come with an interesting question. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? That's a question that the Bible says caused a stir among all in Jerusalem and particularly with King Herod. Herod had killed his own children by one of his wives so that they wouldn't inherit his throne. Then realizing he had no heirs, he had a few more. But he's a sociopath and a psychopath. And so when he hears that there's another king who's been born to be king of the Jews, he kind of panics. And all of Israel goes astir because a new king born to the Jews? Um, he's got to be better than that creep Herod. So they're looking with expectancy. The message is, maybe this is the Messiah. You know that's the message because that's the question Herod asks to the people's priests and teachers. Notice how Matthew is very careful to say that Herod inquires of the people's priests and teachers. They're not his. He makes no claim to be a good Jew. He makes no claim to be godly. He's not. And so he doesn't know the, the prophecies about the Messiah himself at all. He has to go ask the people's teachers. And so that's what he does. And so he goes and asks the teachers. The, the wise men have said something really interesting. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? We from the east saw his star when it rose. And so we've come west to worship him. Think about that for a moment. Now, these are guys who, who study the sky. I love astronomy. Since I was a kid, my dad was a science teacher and taught us astronomy, took us to the, to the planetarium where we watched the presentations, and I could name constellations and individual stars and clusters and, and galaxies when I was eight years old. It's always been a fascination of mine. So I understand that there are certain stars and constellations that we see in our hemisphere that they don't see in the southern hemisphere. And there are certain constellations that we see seasonally. One of my favorites is Orion. Orion in the northern hemisphere is only available in its entirety in the winter. You don't see Orion in the summer. Uh, not all of him. You see bits and pieces of him just above the horizon, but stars rise in the east and set in the west, and they move from north to south. It's really interesting how the sky moves based on our orbit of the sun and the rotation of our planet. But think about that. The sun rises in the east and sets in the west. All the stars rise in the east, transit the sky, and set in the west. So there are some that rise very close to the horizon to the south, and they, they appear only for a little bit above the horizon, and they set in the north. They, they rise in the southwest and set in the, in the northwest. They just make a little bitty loop above the horizon. There are others that rise dead straight 
in the east and, and set dead straight in the west. So once you start to make notes and observe, you understand which stars appear in which season and where in the sky. You know where the bright ones are? Now we know we have names for the bright ones. They probably did too. They probably didn't know the difference between planets and stars. But they had names for them. They had notes about when they would appear and when they would set and when they didn't appear for a while and then they came back. And they say, we observed his star when it rose. We in the east have seen his star on its rising. That's what the Greek literally says. Now they're in the east, so the star must appear in the west because they're going to come from the east to Jerusalem. And if they're from the area of the Levant, they're coming west and south. So the star would have had to have appeared to the southwest of them in the southwestern sky. But they said they saw it when it rose. And stars don't rise in the west. They rise in the east. So very interestingly, here's this star that rises in contradictory motion to all the rest. Now, that's important because the people of their time in history believed that stars were heavenly beings, angels, or whatever they called them in their culture. But the whole Near East, Middle East, Far East world in that time and day believed that those were beings, creatures, outside the dome that protected the Earth's atmosphere and contained it, outside the, the firmament, and, and out there in the heaven where, where gods lived, where angels lived. And so they believe this star is a heavenly being, and there's probably some good reason for that if it moves in contrary motion to all the other heavenly bodies in the sky. They saw it rise, but it was in the west. And so, unless it's one of these little little things that makes this tiny little orbit that just barely breaks over the horizon, like Mercury does at times, rises kind of in the southwest and, and sets kind of to the northwest, unless it's something like that, it's not a natural heavenly body, a star or a planet or a galaxy. Now, I'll support that with a little bit more evidence from the Bible. They come and they ask, where's this baby? And they come in a caravan. Now, they've traveled a long way, and three people wouldn't travel that distance by themselves. They've probably come in a group, a group of eight or 10 or 15. They've probably come on camels and with horses. Remember, they're from the Middle East where horses started. And so they likely have horses and camels to bear packs and supplies that they're going to need for this long journey. So this this really exquisite caravan arrives in Jerusalem, camels and horses, dressed in clothing that people in that area had never seen before. They probably had never encountered people from the Levant. And so these are exquisite strangers. 
the stir gets bigger, right? They tell Herod they've come to worship this king. He goes and asks the chief priests and the teachers, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Interesting question, right? It shows you that Herod assumes that the Messiah may have come. It shows you that the people are stirring about, is this the Messiah? Because that's the question Herod asks. In Bethlehem, hmm, weird little place out in the country. So Herod has a secret meeting. Now you know he's up to no good because it's a secret meeting. And I hear his voice like, like Mr. Potter on, on It's a Wonderful Life. That wicked little man voice. Why don't you go and find this Messiah? And when you find him, come back to me and tell me where he is so that I can go and worship him too. Uh, you just know he's crooked. You know he's, he's warped. And the, the, the Magi didn't know who he was or what to expect. They go on their way. And as soon as they start to strike out for Jerusalem or for Bethlehem, the Bible says the star reappeared and they were overjoyed. It reappeared in a little bit different direction of the sky. That's not what stars do. Because now they're leaving Jerusalem. They're headed in a different direction to the west, north and west, rather than south and west. And the star reappears, just boom, and there it is. And then the Bible says the star moved in a way that led them straight to the house until it came to rest over the house where Mary and Jesus were. Interestingly, it doesn't say Joseph. It says they found Mary and the baby there. Don't know where Joseph was. But it comes to rest. The star moves until it comes to rest over the house where they would find the mother and the baby. That's not a star. It's some kind of angelic being that's leading them. It's a supernatural thing. And that's really okay with the Christ story as we've walked through it in this season. So they find him there, this caravan of eight or 10 or 12 or 15 foreign guys dressed in exquisite robes with horses, which the people in Jerusalem would seldom see except in the hands of the Romans. Probably white horses, probably Arabian horses. They come to this house, they tie up their animals, they dismount, they come to the door. Mary says, my goodness, what in the world? They said, well, we've come from the east and we saw the star rise in the sky that told us the king had been born here. Your priests have told us that this is the community and we saw a star that led us to this place. Is he here? Well, we have a baby. Yes, you may see him. We're getting used to this now. And so the Magi come to see the Christ child. Outside, inside, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Not at a manger. He's now a year old at least. And so they come and they bring him gifts that they had packed, preparing to meet the offspring of the king. So they're preparing to go into the king's court. Now they're at this dirty little house in Bethlehem and they're bringing their royal gifts to this baby. Now, I know, we three kings of Orient are... No, there's more than three. They bring three gifts, but no caravan of three would travel that distance. There's a bunch of them, but they've brought three different gifts, and each of the gifts is significant. 
So the first one brings his gift and unwraps it or opens a box or, or opens the handkerchief in which he's got it concealed. And it's gold. <clears throat> I can't tell you how scarce gold would be in that society. Gold isn't something that common people in that society would even possess. People weren't paid in gold. If they were lucky, they got silver. Most of the coins were bronze or pot metal. But here is real gold. I don't know how much it was. The Bible doesn't tell us. I would assume an ounce or two or three. Not a lot, but any amount of gold was wealth, big wealth in Jesus' day. And here is gold. I don't know if it was coins or melted gold or gold nuggets. I don't know what it was, but it was gold. The kind of gift that you would bring to pay tribute to a young king, to a prince, to the, to the heir to the throne. I can imagine that Jesus' parents were just flabbergasted. Lots of people have asked me, where did the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh, where did they go? I think they were spent. I think they were traded for food and, and supplies, clothing, housing, the things that they would need when they flee to Egypt right after this. I think God is giving them the resources that they need to make the trip to Egypt and then back to Nazareth in a year or so. Herod doesn't live much more than a year after Christ is born. So gold is the first gift, the gift that represents the king. Christ is to be the king of Israel, the Messiah. But the Messiah is something else besides king, or in addition to king. And so the next gift they open is frankincense. Frankincense. That's an odd gift to give to a child. It's the, the incense that they burned in the temple to worship. And it was commonly burned in temples of worship of different sects and, and cults. It's the smell of church. It's the smell of worship. I grew up in an old church uh, in Kingfisher, Oklahoma. When I was a little kid, the first time I remember going to that church, my family lived in Oregon. My grandparents lived in Oklahoma, and we would come back and visit in the summers. And while we were here, we would trade off Sundays going to church with each of the sets of grandparents. And my mother's family went to this Methodist church in Kingfisher, Oklahoma. And I remember as a child that sanctuary and the way it smelled. It smelled like church. A uh, hundred-year-old wood, upholstery, carpet, wooden furnishings, old musical instruments, the, the cologne and perfume that had built up over a hundred years. It just had the smell of church. When I was in high school, we... When I was a third grader, we moved back to Oklahoma and it became our permanent church. As I went through high school, as I went through college, when I would come back as a grown-up with my own children and visit grandma and grandpa and we'd go to their church, it was that church with that aroma. I remember when that church pulled up stakes and built a new church out on the edge of town and they were, they were demolishing that church and I got to go in it. My mom had a key and so we went and visited it before they tore it down. It had already been emptied of all the furnishings and everything else, but it still had that smell. 
it still smelled like worship. That's something of what frankincense represented. It was the smell of worship. It was the gift you would give to a high priest. The gift signifies that Christ will not only be king, he'll also be high priest. Those were two separate offices in the Jerusalem of Jesus' day. But Jesus as Messiah will be both, the spiritual leader and the political leader. Then the third king steps forward with a gift, at least the third gift. And when he unwraps it or opens it, it would have been shocking. Myrrh. Myrrh is like amber. It's a resin. It's sticky. Uh, if it's kept cool and dry, it it's kind of a, a hard substance, kind of a hard, solid, almost a rock. But it will melt at a very low temperature into a waxy, resinous consistency. And when you melt it into its liquid form, then you can pour it over a dead body that's been wrapped in cloth and it will soak into the cloth and as it dries, it seals off the air. So it embalms the body. It had its own scent. And everybody in that culture would have equated that scent with funerals and death. And as a pastor, I can tell you, funeral homes, funerals, funeral chapels, they've all got their own scent. In our culture, there's the faint scent of formaldehyde always in those places. I, I walk in and I know they try very hard to cover it up. They've got aroma therapy and they've got candles and they've got all kinds of things to try and cover it up. But every funeral home I've ever been into that has its own funeral chapel, they all smell of funeral preparations. They smell like death. And all I have to do is breathe one time in one of those places and my mind replays a million funerals. The smell of, of death. And when this wise man opens his gift, everyone around could smell it. It's myrrh. Very expensive. Very valuable. But it's for embalming dead people. Why would you give this to a child? You just gave him a gift that signified he would be king. Then you gave him a gift that signified he would be priest, high priest. The one who goes to God on the people's behalf. The one who offers sacrifice on the people's behalf. But he won't be either until he's died. That's what it means. It had to be the most weird baby shower in the history of the earth. And and Mary had to be left wondering what it all could possibly mean. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. And this caravan of foreigners jumps back on their horses and camels, bids them farewell. And the Bible says, having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went home by a different route. In this new year, could I encourage you to make that our theme? That we will walk on into this new year a different way than we came. We will go into this year different than we approached it. We won't walk the same way we did in the past year into this one. 
we will take a different path home from now on. Not because we've been warned of harm, but because revival and renewal and promise lay along that path. Would you commit with me right now that in this new year, we will walk a different path than we've walked yet before? In that vein, several of you have emailed me or messaged me and and asked me to do a bunch of different things in this new year for the podcast. And one that people continually ask me about is uh, my walk through the Gospel of John. In every church I've ever pastored, I have spent significant time preaching my way through every verse of Scripture in the Gospel of John. For much of my life, I had the entire Gospel of John memorized verse by verse. Uh, I was trying to recite it the other day to see how far I could get. I can still get most of it, but at 61, I have a few lapses in my memory of the entire gospel. But it's lived in my heart for 40 years. When I graduated from school, my favorite New Testament professor said, take a book of the Bible and make it yours. Buy the commentaries, read the literature, dive in as deeply as you can, dissect it, deconstruct it, do your critical study on it, become an expert in one Old Testament book and one New Testament book, and spend your life there. So I chose Ezekiel in the Old Testament and the Gospel of John in the New Testament. Now, if you know me, uh, you are aware that 20 years into my ministry, um, I took some classes at the seminary with that same professor and we were talking about the Gospel of John and he brought into play the other Johannine literature, 1st John, 2nd John, 3rd John and Revelation and said, I think now you would benefit by branching out and studying the scope of Johannine literature. And so I did and I got captivated by the book of Revelation, hence my book the title of this podcast, and the life that I've lived uh, looking for meaning and truth in the book of Revelation. But I never lost my love for the Gospel of John, because if you don't understand the Gospel of John and the symbols that John holds to be most precious, you'll never understand the book of Revelation. So several of you have said, having sat with me for 40 years of ministry, would you please go back and walk through the Gospel of John like you did when you were preaching? So that's what I'm going to do. Coming into the new year, the new direction I'm going to take is that with the podcast, the next episode, we will start in the Gospel of John. Um, If you follow the podcast divisions in one of the podcasting services, uh, I've... I've, um, designated these Advent, Christmas, Epiphany messages as season three. Um, I will start season four with the first episode in the Gospel of John. So uh, buckle in. It's going to take a long time. I've got material now for the next couple of years, probably, in the Gospel of John. We will will take uh, roughly what we call exegetical units, roughly paragraph at a time, or 
a parable at a time or an account at a time or a story at a time. And we will look at them in that in that light mostly. But I always stick with my my key tenet of reading the Bible. Every morning I read or listen to just enough scripture until I hear something or read something that moves my heart. And then I close the book or turn off the podcast or turn off the the recording of the Bible and I walk through the day reflecting on that one thought. So I'm trying with my church friends to read through the New Testament in the next year. That's really hard in my world because I get distracted and chase rabbits, but I'm going to try and do that while we're also walking through the Gospel of John. I will do my best to get us through the Gospel of John in the next year's time. So by next Advent season, by the end of next November, I hope that we are through the Gospel of John, but I can't make any promises because it's a lot. But I think that's where we're headed. Well, I'm sure that's where we're headed. I hope you'll join us and uh, feel free to always email me, revelationpowerbook at gmail.com, revelationpowerbook at gmail.com or revkevhop at gmail.com. Feel free to email me, ask questions. Uh, If you are a Spotify listener, I think there's a new feature on Spotify that lets you ask questions right there in the Spotify app. I will be uh, enabling that, turning that on, if that's at all possible and if it's an option you want to use. So um, don't don't hesitate to ask questions, to ask me to, to chase a different rabbit, um, because the Gospel of John, to me, is the heart of the New Testament. And, and if you can answer the questions and understand the thoughts that John presents in his Gospel, I think you have everything necessary to lead a productive and joyous Christian life. So that's the journey we're going to go on. It's a little bit different journey than we've been on yet in the podcast, but I've determined this year I'm going back a different way. So join us if you would. Um, Thank you for a great uh, year in podcasting, for buying the book, for for being part of, of what we've done all along the way. Uh, yes, I'm working on a second book. Yes, it should be finished soon. I've said that since last summer. Still the truth. Um, I have the bulk of it completed. It needs proofing, a little bit of editing, and then it'll go to the publisher. So in this next year, my, my next book will probably be released. But we will walk through the Gospel of John. As long as Jesus tarries and gives me breath and and life, this is what we'll do. So I hope you'll join us. Thank you again for being such good friends and and so loyal to the podcast. We have somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 to 190 listeners each and every week. Some weeks we jump up to 250, 260, but almost every week it's 150 to 190 listeners a week. Um, it's, it's just a blessing to me that you have been loyal and continue to to walk with me and send feedback and ask questions. Um, It's joyous to walk this journey with you. Have a great evening, and I'll see you soon.